Welcome back to That's Helpful with me, Ed Stott. It's around this time of year that we start to think about our goals for the year ahead, particularly when it comes to our physical health. Perhaps you want to be more active or manage your stress more effectively. But as you're planning your goals, you may want to take a minute to consider the forgotten organ. As we start to learn more about our gut microbiome and its effects on the rest of the body, we're starting to understand the valuable role it plays in our health. So today we're leveling up our gut bacteria knowledge and learning a little more about the gut-brain connection. Dr. Amy Luffman is a research psychologist, senior research fellow, and head of microbiome research at Deakin University's Food and Mood Center. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. I can't wait to talk about this. It's absolutely fascinating to me. So (laughs) tell me, let's start at the beginning. What is the gut microbiome? So the gut microbiome, it's this community of organisms, microorganisms that live in and around our gastrointestinal tract. So that really starts at the mouth and goes right through to the other end. But usually we are talking about the large intestine. So we're talking about bacteria, fungi, viruses, and other tiny, tiny bugs that are all working together and working with the cells around the body to help not just your um, motility and your nutrient absorption and those metabolic functions, but also with most of the organs around the body, it has a role to play. Yeah. So what makes up our microbiome? How do we, how is that particular makeup of bacteria made up? You mean, how does it get started and how do we set it it up as a... Yeah, yeah. Well, you've... uh, Put your finger on a real topic of controversy in the field, actually. Oh. (laughs) The question of how it gets started and how it's established is still very much in debate. So there are people who believe that we're born essentially sterile without microbes and it's just through the birthing process that we get this first bout of inoculation from that whole process and then the hospital environment and, you know, our siblings and everything else. Mm. And then there's also research going on into whether in utero – the fetus actually has some microbes um, across the placenta through the mum. And it seems that they might not be bacteria as such, but there is some priming of this microbial ecosystem that is happening um, during pregnancy for infants. So they start life with some exposure or some preparation for the microbial onslaught, which, um, you know, starts from day one and then goes on forever, really. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. And so how does the microbiome affect us? I alluded to that a little bit there, but, it, but it, mm. you know, it really affects quite a lot of things that we wouldn't ordinarily expect. For sure. And it's something that is being uncovered more and more every day. Yeah. So, of course, the obvious thing is helping us to digest food. So mm. microbes do um, metabolize, so they... Uh, take nutrients from and make use of some of the fibers that our stomach can't metabolize and that we can't metabolize without um, these microbial friends. So um, that's where dietary fiber is really important. Fiber actually feeds microbes. And it's one of the big reasons that fiber is such an essential part of a diet. And Mm. um, most of us don't get enough, particularly in Australia and other Western countries. Um, But that's only one side of things. So You've probably also heard about how the immune system is very largely housed within the gut and Mm. the health of the microbiome and how well it can work has a big part to play in how well our immune system works more broadly. Wow. Part of the the reason for that is that the gut is kind of an interface between the outside world and the inside world, if you think about it. Of course. 
I mean, it is very internal to us, of course, but how we interact with the world is in a big part um, through what we eat and how we ingest things. And so the gut lining is um, a bit like the skin in that it interfaces directly with what comes in from the outside world and um, the rest of our body. And so the gut microbiome um, helps to maintain that lining of the gut and that is where a lot of the immune discussion and interplay happens. Wow, that's so interesting. I never thought about that before, but of course, that's such an interesting... We're just one big pipe, really. (laughs) (laughs) One big good-looking pipe. Um, (laughs) So the other thing that we're learning more and more about and that's being revealed more and I suppose talked more about is the gut-brain connection. Hmm. And this fascinates me. Can you tell me about what the gut-brain connection is? Well, it's a whole bunch of different things. There are lots of ways in which the gut and brain are uh, communicating all the time. Mm. It's a constant um, bi-directional communication in both directions that where the gut is learning about what's going on for the brain and um, stress levels and hunger levels and things like that. And likewise, the brain is getting cues about how well the gut environment is operating. And that's everything from the sort of hunger and toileting side of things to Um, pain receptors and immune functioning and more and it goes through a number of different channels so there's the vagus nerve which connects the brain to most of the bigger organ systems in the body and that includes the gut and microbes are a big part of that connection and communication system Mm. Um, there are all these tiny cells that come off um, microbes um, during metabolism that can speak to other organs in the body and including including the brain. And then, as I said, the immune system and inflammation, which is a sort of big communication pathway of the immune system, is also impacted by microbes. And that's another way that it speaks to the brain. So there's really lots and lots of interacting bi-directional pathways. Massively complex, all- but super cool. Yeah, so cool. And there's also discussion now, isn't there, about, you know, we well to me somebody who has no medical knowledge I often think about the fact that you know the brain controls the majority of the body but actually we're learning that that is kind of a two-way street isn't it the the link between the gut and the brain for sure and the gut has been called the second brain because there are cells that are like neurons so the brain cells that actually exist in the gut and there are developmental reasons for that sort of as we grow from you know a single cellular organism um, part of that Um, development sort of is mirrored across gut and brain tissues so there is some similarity in their structure and um, how they communicate. Wow that's so interesting why do you think it is that this you know area of research is so new like we don't really I think it's not I mean probably to you it's not that new but you know it's it's such a big thing in our lives and most of us have no idea that, that our gut has this much of an impact on our health. For sure. Well, it certainly has kind of reached prime time recently. So part yeah. of it is just it's a cool idea and it's reached popularity. <laughs> but also the technology in mapping the human genome, which um, happened in the early 2000s, really mm. paved the way to be able to do the same with the microbial genome. And that's a big way that we analyze the data. So before that, you sort of had to put microbes under a microscope and, uh, you know, culture them and watch them grow and then count them. Whereas now you can essentially put them through a big, big computer um, that can count them all for you um, and read their genomes and work out what they might be doing. So we've come a long way in being able to map them easily, which of course means that the research can progress more quickly. Yeah. Wow. You just blow my mind on so many levels in like three minutes. (laughs) 
<laughs> this bodes very well. Um, so you've also studied this in babies, the link between gut bacteria and behavior. What did you find right. when you looked at that? Yeah, now this was a few years ago now and mm. the field moves very, very quickly. But yeah. what we're trying to do is to understand how microbes during infancy, which is this big change period for everything, obviously for you know the development of the body and the brain, and it turns out microbes as well, the first three years are kind of critical to setting up the way a microbiome environment operates in infants. Mm. Um, and, of course, it's when babies enter the, all of the exposures in the world, whether there are pets in the family or, you know, they start eating yeah. food and all of that stuff. Um, so we want to work out what is it about the infant microbial environment that might set people up for protection or vulnerability um, towards behavioral conditions or behavioral problems, mm -hmm. because those in turn have relevance for mental health later in childhood. Um, yeah. And then in adulthood. So, of course, it's not a determined thing. It's not like um, a, a tricky child with lots of tantrums is necessarily going to go on to have mental health difficulties, but we know it's an early risk factor. So, we were interested in trying to understand that relationship. And with the gut-brain access stuff becoming more important, we wanted to see, are there some microbes that can um, that are protective or confer risk? And we found that there, in the study that I ran a couple of years ago, um, there was one that... Um, if you had more of it, you were less likely to have behavior problems at age two. And if you had less of another one at age one, you were uh, more likely to have behavior problems. So that was really just a starting point. And there have been a few other studies since that have looked at this in different countries and in different sized um, populations and in different aged kids. And all of those variables matter. So it's very hard mm. to do this research because... Uh, basically any factor you can think of, where you come from, who your parents were, where you grew up, yeah. how many pets you have, all of those things impact the gut microbiome. So to get a common answer across studies is something that the field is working towards. We're still in that very early stage where we're just getting new ideas popping up here and there when we're still trying to work out what it all means. But it was an early sign that what is in kids' guts does affect their behavioural and perhaps their cognitive development as well. Just wow, another indicator so that it all matters. It's all connected. Yeah, another huge clue, isn't it? Mm. And so how can our microbiome affect our mood and our stress levels? Or is that, this, you know, is it just a continuous circle where they're all linked? It is. It's a circle and it operates in both directions and probably every other direction, you know, not just back and forth. <laughs> yeah. um, enormously complex, but through those uh, pathways that I mentioned before, it's in constant communication. We'd all have that experience, I think, of our gut kind of knowing when we're stressed. Mm -hmm. uh, we feel it immediately. We might get butterflies in the stomach or you just feel a bit wobbly. Um, and so that's just a real life example, really, of those connections happening all the time. Um, and another one is that um, inflammation, as I mentioned, is a really important factor for how well the brain is functioning. And the gut microbes and how happy they are have a big impact on the rest of the body's circulating inflammation level. So you kind of want to be staying, keeping things on an even keel and staying calm, um, both in terms of your headspace, but also in terms of how all of your systems are operating. And the microbiome is just another one of those systems that's really attuned to stress and other sort of um, turmoil, whether it be biological or in our environment or in our psychology. Yeah, wow. And, and can it affect our sleep? 
Well, the jury's out on which way it goes. So we know that when sleep is disrupted, microbes change. And it seems like they have this circadian rhythm, just like lots of other organs in the body. So they do different things in the night and in the day. So when you mess with that through jet lag or through shift work, microbes totally change. Um, Whether they are then in turn affecting how someone sleeps and the quality Mm. of sleep, I'm not sure that we have the answer on that yet. Um, but it, it's an active area of investigation and the circadian rhythm thing is a whole nother um, fascinating topic that, yeah, I'm certainly not an expert in, but I'm sure that microbes have a part to play. Wow, that's so interesting. So does that mean that we should be really pay attention to when we eat in order to bo- to best support the microbiome? Another really good one. So that kind of feeds into the intermittent fasting question. Yeah. Whether we should go, you know, periods of fasting throughout the day. And there are microbiome studies on this. Um, Mm. But I think there's a lot more evidence in animals at the moment than in humans. And, of course, there are obvious limitations to translating that that evidence it seems like it's a good idea and microbes do benefit from some sort of rest or reset and it maybe is how we ate uh, you know before food was everywhere the sort of hunter-gatherer stereotype was probably more primed to that Um, and it seems it has metabolic uh, benefits for us Um, blood glucose metabolism for example is improved Um, but from a microbiome point of view I don't think it's totally clear yet what the impact of fasting is on it. Yeah, wow. And how do we know if we have a healthy microbiome? How can we Mm. tell if if it's good in there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. And look, even for a lot of scientists in the field, it's still a black box. Even though we we can sequence and work out what's in there, we can sequence and work out what those um, genes might be doing or be capable of doing, exactly how they interact with us and what is optimal is still an open question. Mm. So it's not like there is this blueprint or a template of this is the microbiome everybody wants. There are certain features we know that we don't want it to be pro-inflammatory. That's kind of, I've mentioned inflammation so many times now, but that's a running theme throughout so many areas of medicine and it's just as true here. Um, So you don't want it to be perpetuating inflammation in the gut environment. Um, You want it to be able to digest fiber well and to have lots of fiber sources. But beyond that, is it working well? It's probably for you and I to work out, is our individual microbes working well? That's more about are we generally in good health do we have an absence of gut symptoms and pain and bloating? Um, well, if those things are true, then you're probably okay. You probably don't need to look into it anymore. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, the flip side is not necessarily true. So just being unwell or having um, IBS, for example, or some bloating every now and then doesn't necessarily mean you have a microbiome problem either. So while it's a super cool topic, I'd probably caution that a lot of it is still in the research Um, Mm. sphere and it's not something we can translate right back to our lives and say therefore this is the microbiome I need or these are the probiotics I need it's a question I get all the time that's really tricky to answer (laughs) yeah absolutely I bet I bet so if we think that we you know I mean I guess we don't know whether we have a healthy gut microbiome as you said but what can we do to best support it regardless well, that is easier to answer. Yeah, go so, ahead. <laughs> and the good news and the bad news, I think it, it's probably both, is that all of the things we know to be good for general health and that are just good, sensible things to do that 
you know, you could ask your grandma and she'd tell you the same thing, <laughs> are probably good for the microbiome. So the science is now kind of catching up with common sense and ancient wisdom in a sense. Eat, in, eat good stuff in moderation. Um, sleep well. Keep your stress levels in check. And as well as sleep well, I think sleep regularly, that sort of regularity of sleep cycle seems to be important for that circadian rhythm stuff I was talking about earlier. Mm. Knocking microbes around too much by not know, not giving them a sense of what to expect day in, day out seems to be problematic. Mm. Um, physical activity seems to be good for the microbiome, although that evidence is less strong. And then a varied and diverse diet um, full of uh, fresh foods and lots of fibre. They're the kind of key things, really. Um, we do talk about diet a lot more probably in the microbiome, but I think that stress piece is a really important one as well because of those gut-brain connections I mentioned before and one that is less, um, I think, sellable in a way. Um, yeah, you know, we, we certainly can't bottle that. Although, you know, mindfulness and meditation is certainly just as popular as the microbiome idea, um, sometimes it's just doing less take a break yeah. take a breath you know it's less commercializable but I think really just as important yeah absolutely and is there, is there anything obviously you've spoken about that mindfulness and you know being conscious of that stress but there, is there any particular stress management technique that's found to be <laughs> beneficial for the microbiome or is it just general being mindful of that I think different uh different things for different people whatever you know keeps you in a good balance um, yeah. and manages stress level is likely to be best for each person. If there's anything that we've learned from the microbiome, it's that it is so individual and it just mirrors, um, you know, what we know about everything else about a person. It's It depends so much on what they prefer and what their history has been and uh, what, you know, their genetics is and all of that. Yeah, and there has been this trend towards getting your microbiome tested, right? You can mm, pay to yep. get your microbiome tested and figure out which bacteria is in your gut. Is that how does that work and is that a good idea? I've been pretty loud on this one. Um yeah. which is sometimes a bit awkward because we do do research in collaboration with companies that um offer this service. But I have no hesitation in saying um, that I wouldn't recommend it right now mm. and I haven't done it for myself for that reason. So in terms of how it's done, it's done the same way as we do it for research. It's put through a big sequencing machine. It costs about 300 Australian dollars, maybe a little bit more at the moment. Um, and you can be told exactly what bacteria are in there with a pretty high degree of reliability if you choose a good service. Um, and they can also indicate what functions they might be doing. But beyond that, we don't really know what it means. And as yeah, I said, right. everyone's is different. The ideal gut microbiome hasn't been mapped yet. So we can't tell you if it's a good thing or a bad thing that you've got more of this and less of that. Mm. You know, a good example is E. coli has a really bad rap as being a nasty bug and it can definitely yeah. cause problems. Almost all of us have E. coli in some degree. So yeah. it's about how well it's balanced with everything else, how well the whole ecosystem is functioning just knowing you have more of one thing or less of another isn't necessarily um, a prompt to go and do something different about it or to, yeah, to worry. Yeah, still so early. Mm. One of the early, um, one of the other pieces of research that I've seen is the link between the gut microbiome and Alzheimer's. Can mm -hmm. you explain the research around that? Yeah, so there's a growing body of research actually in both animals and humans 
um, showing that firstly, when you look at people with Alzheimer's versus healthy age match controls of people of the same age and similar medical profile, but who don't have Alzheimer's disease, their microbiomes are different. So that's mm. kind of the first clue that there might be something going on. And um, there's when they do work in animals, animals that have a um, that are genetically modified to develop Alzheimer's disease, if mm. they don't have gut microbes, then they don't develop it at the same rate. So there's something about an interaction between that genetic risk and the microbes that is causing the disease, wow. at least in animals. Yeah. That is absolutely fascinating. Is there anything else that's, is, is there, are there any other diseases or, um, you know, health concerns that do have, do apparently, you know, with what knowledge we have right now, have a link to the microbiome? Ed, it's basically name one and I'll tell you it does have a link. It's hard Seriously? to honestly to find an example where someone hasn't published a study showing that there are microbial involvements in a disease. Yeah. Wow. So skin conditions are often related to the skin microbiome. Every niche in the body, including the belly button, has its own microbiome. And with perhaps with the exception of the belly button, they've all been linked to a disease, one disease or another. The oh, nasal wow. microbiome has been looked at with COVID, the lung microbiome with asthma, the gut microbiome with asthma as well, diabetes, cancers, you name it. It really is, it has a finger in every pie. Mm. Uh, we haven't totally mapped out why yet, but it's definitely involved. Yeah, that is so interesting. That mm. is really fascinating. And you say that most of us aren't eating enough fiber. How much fiber should we be eating and what kind of fiber should we be eating? So I'm not a dietitian, but it's between yeah. 20 to 30 grams a day. The mm -hmm. Australian Dietary Guidelines and all of the other major dietary guidelines around the world um, are pretty up to date with what seems to be the right number. But the latest research is that less than half of all Australians will be getting an adequate amount of dietary fiber. And when you look at the amounts, and obviously you can combine it in different ways. There's fiber in lots of things, but at different degrees. The highest mm. value ones are your legumes and beans, your fresh fruit and vegetables, and then high fiber breads and cereals. Um, mm. It's actually quite a large volume that you need. So yeah. it's almost like you need to be deliberately thinking about it in every meal. Yeah. Um, there's obviously fiber supplements like Metamucil and psyllium husk based things like that which are great for regularity keeping your mm. bowels moving but they're only one kind of fiber and the other complicating thing is there are so many different kinds and you need a combination for your gut microbiome to be balanced and healthy so you really want to be getting it through food mostly rather than through supplements like that when you can and what about all those supplements and fermented foods? You know, like we can buy the prebiotics, the probiotics, there's kefir, there's, you know, kombucha. Do we know whether they're doing anything for us mm. at all? We're starting to get a picture of it. So I'd, mm. I'll start with the fermented foods first. Yeah. I think the supplements and the probiotics um, are a kind of separate issue. Yeah. But with the fermented foods, we know that they have existed in almost every culture's traditional dietary you know, options. And mm. part of that's just a pragmatic thing about we didn't used to have fridges, so we need to be able to preserve food some way, right? And different cultures have found different delicious uh, ways to do that. Mm. But also it gives us a clue that maybe that's formed a part of a nutritious diet in those traditional cultures as well. Yeah. And that so there might be a good reason to keep them in our diet. Um, although nutrition research is really tricky to measure and to conduct and comes up with lots of contradictory findings mm. um one thing we do know is that modern 
processed food heavy diets are less healthful than your more traditional you know old school type diets so by extension I would say that if fermented foods are in those ancient diets then it's not a bad idea to try and keep them in our contemporary diets Mm. having said that I don't think you need to be eating fistfuls of all of the fermented foods because you know also um our ancestors weren't doing that you know they came from one country with one or two types it's not as though they had kimchi and sauerkraut and kefir and you know all of my god it sounds like a recipe for bellyache well that's the other thing you can definitely (laughs) overdo it and there are some risks associated with it so it's not a prescription that we you know give everybody because you know there are there are live bacteria in there. So if they're off, there's obviously a higher risk than for other foods. But um, there is some early indication that they will be good for health. Um, mm. But we can't say yet have this amount of this one. It, it, I think it's just a matter of incorporate it into a diet if you enjoy them and it's unlikely to be a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the supplements mm. and and mm. the, the, the added you know, those added things we can add to our diet, which, you know, our chemists are stuck with now. Yes, they really are. Um, now, they're usually one or two strains. And yeah. we know that the microbiome is a super complex thing of thousands of strains. And as I've said, more of one particular one is not necessarily a problem if the rest of it is balanced out. So this, yeah. by the same sort of philosophy, if you're just adding one strain of say lactobacillus from your pharmacy's probiotics shelf it may not in your gut have a particularly beneficial effect mm. so some do there have been some plenty of clinical studies actually and for the most part it's about gut symptoms they have the yeah. best evidence for gut symptoms i wouldn't really believe much you hear about probiotics for other things mm-hmm. um but there there are some websites and i'm happy to share them afterwards that you could put yeah. in show notes or whatever um that kind of run through the evidence level for the most part, it's less than promised, but there is a little bit. And for some conditions, um, you might consider it. And also after antibiotics, maybe not a bad idea because it you know, puts something good back into your gut. Interesting. That's really interesting. And so when you talk about gut symptoms, you mean stuff like bloating, uncomfortable pain, yeah, diarrhea, constipation, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Okay. That's fascinating because one of the things that I heard about, um, like probiotics and taking those supplements is that yeah you can take them and they've got like 65 million or whatever in (laughs) those little capsules and you think wow but the Mm -hmm. percentage of the gut the bacteria that actually survives through your stomach and makes it there yeah right and uh, I mean companies are getting on to that problem so um they are trying to make them survive the the stomach acid but then it's a matter of whether they colonize because they've got to stay there longer than just you know the passage of the rest of your food and intake so that's another big question that's mostly unanswered is there any way in taking you know because you're talking about the fact that it's all about this right balance is there any way that in taking particular probiotics or taking these supplements we could actually knock our gut health out and do our microbiome a disservice I think if you had a really vulnerable unstable microbiome to start with say it was super depleted through multiple rounds of antibiotics or you'd have a nasty gut infection it is possible Mm. that you Mm. could put too much of one of these you know good bacteria but out of balance into there I think it's unlikely um, in the the strains they choose are pretty 
positive strains. Yeah. You know, they're not not putting E. coli in a bottle. Um, <laughs> Don't buy that. <laughs> no. Um, and there's a lot cheaper places you can find that. <laughs> right. Yeah. For free, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also our body has this regenerative capacity. So, yeah. you know, likely it would be putting the um, – what's natural for you as a host to have in your microbiome back in even after it was disturbed through antibiotic hits or um, whatever else. Yeah, super interesting. That is fascinating. Is there anything else that is really valuable to know when it comes to best supporting our gut microbiome? Mm. Um, I think it's just helpful to think of this um, invisible forgotten organ Mm. as an extra set of microbial friends to look after because, you know, yeah. we have so many other reasons, I suppose, to be healthy, but this is, they're actual living things, you know, yeah. and they really interact with everything. Um, it's nothing to do with weight loss or, you know, heart disease, which is super important, but very long-term kind of health goals, right? Mm. Whereas your gut microbiome can change really rapidly based on what you eat. In as quickly as two days, if you change your diet, it will change because they're being fed directly through what you eat and interact with in the world. So I think it's also this redemptive sense that comes with microbiome research, which is it's never too late. Mm. Um, You know, you might have had an awful diet for ages Um, But little changes will be felt, um, hopefully positive changes, and will have flow-on effects um, to these tiny microorganisms, which are super important throughout the body. Oh, that's brilliant. That is so good to know. So if we, you know, are really keen to make a change and kind of best support our microbiome, what's the three main things we should absolutely keep in mind to best support it? Hmm. Um, So fiber, for sure. And just more fresh food, fresh fruit and vegetables than you would have thought necessary. Yeah. Um, not overdoing um, antibiotics. I mean, yeah. that's less of a patient decision and more of a kind of health system decision. And it's one that, you know, for lots of reasons, um, medical practitioners are, are right across that. But just a good reminder that they're mm. not only, you know, the side effects that um, some people experience with antibiotics but and the fact that they don't treat everything, but also you don't want to be decimating your microbiome every time. Mm. Um, and then finally, I think all those other things I mentioned before about stress and sleep, it's kind of, um, that's one really easy way to support your microbiome. That's also good for the rest of your health. There's sort of yeah. no downside, right? Mm. Absolutely. Is there, is there one thing that's like an absolute no-no for gut microbiome? Is there one thing that's like mm. absolutely terrible? Um, look, I sort of believe that you can get away with anything in small doses. Yeah. <laughs> and it's mostly about moderation. Yeah. Um, but I don't really go for artificial sweeteners and food additives when you can avoid them. You don't want those in big doses either. Obviously, small amounts, fine. We're all going to come in contact with these things. There's no reason to be evangelist about them. But, um, yeah, we know that the, the more processing food goes through, the more weird additives get added and um, the further away from kind of a – traditional food system we're in and so your microbes haven't evolved for that Mm. Um, that's that's new food to our bodies new food to our microbes and they're probably not going to benefit 
What has research around artificial sweetness found? Because I'm a big believer in this. I really try and avoid artificial sweetness because mainly they just make me feel so crap. But right, and I, that's a perfect clue. I think I think right? that's probably the most important evidence you should go with. <laughs> yeah. They just make me feel terrible. But there is that other evidence that potentially they may not be so good for our gut microbiome. Certainly in high doses, um, that's mm. been shown really clearly. Um, in animal studies particularly, like to the point of being really bad for your gut lining and for causing yeah, inflammation, yeah. we probably don't eat them in such big doses, most of us hopefully. Um, mm. But, um, it, you know, everything you eat will change your microbiome in some way. And I just can't, you know, there have been, associations shown with specific strains the level of evidence isn't super high but also Mm. there's been nothing positive shown (laughs) so I think if you can avoid them do I also think they taste crappy I can't stand even stevia I just sort of I feel like it's got this back of mouth feel that I can't deal with it's so weird isn't it do you know what though when we when I was um growing up when I was a kid and like from I don't know, eight until probably I was about 20. I only drank like sugar-free squash. It's not really a thing here, but you know, like sugar-free cordial. Yeah. Oh, wow. What's I drank, uh, I don't know. I just like really (laughs) bad sweeteners. Mm. And honestly, I used to drink pints and pints and pints of the stuff. And now I have IBS. So I'm like, damn it. May not be cause and effect, but yeah. Right. But like, I think, oh, maybe that I didn't do myself any favors there. But yeah, that's good Mm. to know. How interesting. That's super good to know. So we fiber, avoid the sweeteners if we can, exercise and manage our stress. Those are our Mm. best things to do. That sounds really great. Is there anything else that you think is really interesting or important to include when we're talking about microbiome? Look, there's so much. It's such a rapidly moving field. I Mm. think the important thing is to take all the reading with a grain of salt. Um, I'm in this field, but even I don't, I I won't subscribe to the hype, you know. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'll happily tell you how important it is, but um, just know that it's really new and so don't get sucked into everything. And remember that um, common sense is usually the way to go. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's so (laughs) useful. Thank you so much for spending this time with me, Amy. I'm really fascinated and I'm confident that we've empowered people to do their gut microbiome a flavor in the (laughs) health goals. Amazing. Thank you so much, Amy. Yeah, more than welcome. Thank you. That was Dr. Amy Luffman. She's a research psychologist, senior research fellow and head of microbiome research at Deakin University's Food and Mood Center. Thanks so much for joining us today. I will put those links that Amy mentioned into the show notes. And this is part of the 12 Pods of Christmas series when I'm releasing a new episode every Tuesday, Sunday and Thursday in December to help you have your best holiday season yet. I make this all for you absolutely free and I have no annoying ads. I just have one small favor to ask in exchange you probably already know what it is if you haven't already please can you leave me a review on your favorite podcasting app it helps other people find our little self-improvement club and it takes approximately 10 seconds thank you so much until next time i'm ed stott and i sincerely hope that's been helpful